I don't know about you, but we're always looking for ways to get our kids involved and give back in our local community. That's why we're excited to tell you about Student Visionaries of the Year, a campaign by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. Student Visionaries of the Year is a seven-week philanthropic leadership development program for high school students. Participants form strong teams and fundraise in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. I would love for Violet to do this program when she's in high school. This program is transformative. It not only helps students develop valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship, not to mention it looks great on college applications, but most importantly, it's also a chance for them to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on blood cancer patients and their families. You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hey, everyone. Gretchen and I had so much fun going on the road. We're going to do it again. Portland, San Francisco, and Seattle. Tickets are now on sale for our live shows in September. You can get details and ticket links at GretchenRubin.com slash events. And we'll be announcing more cities and dates soon. If you want to make sure you get notified we're coming to your city, sign up for Gretchen's newsletter at GretchenRubin.com slash hashtag newsletter. Yes, that's hashtag newsletter. Please come and bring your friends. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, Liz, here they are. These are my wide leg jeans. Oh, I love them. Those would be perfect for a meeting. I, I feel like I would be silly in a meeting. These are more like to wear to a kid birthday party to show I'm still cool. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Liz Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A., and with me is my high school friend and writing partner of 19 years, Sarah. That's me, Sarah Fain. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career and friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. In this week's episode, we're talking to two writers from the CW show In the Dark. Jess Burkle and Ryan Knighton. Both Jess and Ryan have visual disabilities, and we're going to talk to them about being professional writers with a disability and about their surprising superpowers in the writer's room. Then we answer a question about mom jeans and overalls and whether we should all be trying to be hipper, even if we're not 20-something. And we have a Hollywood hack that Liz just dropped as a casual comment in conversation like it was no big deal that totally changes my life. But first, an update. Sarah, we had our first ever Happier in Hollywood Q&A cocktail party. Yes, it was was so great. So fun. I mean, so fun. We're tired, exhausted, but it was so great. It really was. We had a great group of people. Everyone asked wonderful questions. We'll share some of them in upcoming weeks. Your backyard was beautiful. That was gratifying. You got to turn on the fire pit. Um, It really was fun, and it definitely encouraged us to do more events. So we're we're going to, you know, get to having more events. Yes, and the best thing, like the thing that made me just, like, personally feel so 
good is several people commented about how supportive the group was and how positive they were as a group. And and that, like, as a networking event, which is essentially what it was, it felt, like, more uplifting than others they've been to. And that made me feel so good. Yeah, well, I, our listeners are the best. Yes. So thank you to everyone who came yes. to Liz's house, and thanks for all the amazing questions. We had such a good time. Can I point out one negative, Sarah? Sure. Uh, we had a lot of food. Somehow, between yesterday and this morning, I gained four and a half pounds. <laughs> oh, my God. So next time we have a party, will you remind me of that before I dig into the chip bowl? I will. Okay. I will. Oh, and Liz, we promised we'd take a video of ourselves answering a question from our Happier in Hollywood inbox. And we did that sitting on the bench in your backyard. Uh, We posted it in our Facebook group. So if you want to check it out, it's on the Facebook group. Yes. It was a question about... uh, Do we ever um, deal with creative lulls the way you're dealing with a health lull? And how can someone um, who's had a baby and sort of been out of it get back in? Yes. Coming up, we'll talk to Jess Burkle and Ryan Knighton. But first, this break. Liz, there is nothing I love more than having a delicious meal that I didn't have to cook, which is why I have been getting no prep, no mess meals from Factor. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Last night, I had had blackened salmon with broccoli and with cauliflower rice. It was so delicious. It was the perfect dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash HIH50 and use code HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code HIH50 at factormeals.com slash HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Okay, Liz, it's time for From the Treadmill Desks Of, in which we discuss what's most pressing in our work psyches. This week, it's being a professional with a disability. And today we're talking with Jess Burkle and Ryan Knighton. They're both writers on the CW show In the Dark, which is about a blind 20-something young woman whose life is turned upside down when her friend is murdered. Jess Burkle has done everything from stand-up and playwriting to acting to public art installations, directing, set design, and running an off-Broadway theater in New York. He received a Drama Desk nomination for Best Play, and as the managing director of a nonprofit theater in New York, he won an Obie Award for Artistic Achievement. And he has a form of macular degeneration called cone rod dystrophy. Ryan Knighton is an internationally acclaimed author, screenwriter, and public speaker. He's also a Sundance Lab Screenwriting Fellow and the recipient of the 2009 Alfred Sloan Prize from the Tribeca Film Institute. He's currently writing a feature script called Peace of Mind for Paramount with Bad Robot Producing and Daisy Ridley attached to star. And he has retinitis pigmentosa. Jess and Ryan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks. We're very excited. So we're going to just dive in with the deep stuff because we want to start with something that, Jess, you wrote in an email when you sent your bio. You basically said, just heads up, we're cool, we, you can't offend us. <laughs> and it it was 
fascinating to They're me. We're going to try. <laughs> We're going to do our <laughs> Top best. 10 insults. Here we go. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was fascinating to me because as women, we always tell other women, say fuck in a meeting because you want people to know you can hang. So do huh. you feel like as blind writers, when you come into a room, you kind of have to let people know you can hang? Hmm. I, I mean, I think it's important to not it's not about putting people at ease, but it's like making sure that we can talk about it because it's uh-huh. it's not it's rare that people actually engage with people who are visually impaired or fully blind. So they have a lot of questions that they never had the opportunity to ask. And generally, like Ryan and I have been through like the top 10 questions that we get asked all the time. <laughs> so when you kind of set up the space to have the conversation, then you have it and you move on quickly. Whereas if it just kind of hangs there, it's like. I want to ask him if he can see me. Yeah. Isn't that Uh, your interesting? Ryan, you feel that too? Oh, yeah. It's the elephant in the room. If you don't address it right away. I've I've always said like the, it's almost you have to disarm it right away. Otherwise, you become an inspirational meeting. Yeah. Right. And it becomes so much about like the words that you use where it's like, you can can call us whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. You Uh, set the tone and then it. it, Right. Like as comfortable as you are with yourself, they mirror back. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. that is like a deep insight for all of us. Yeah. 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 I know. Our, our, <laughs> that applies to everybody. Yeah. And it applies in, in all realms of the industry. It's like your confidence is their confidence. So if I'm confident talking about it and I'm like bulletproof about it, then you can be bulletproof about asking about it. And then we don't we end up not talking about it that way. It just it's just that intimacy of the writer's room that you want from that kind of thing. Mm hmm. Now, speaking of the writer's room, you also wrote, you have, Jess, you have surprising superpowers in the writer's room. What, can you guys both talk about that? Yeah, I mean, what we were, we were talking, we were breaking a particular episode of In the Dark, and the question came up of what was our lead character's special skill? Because people should know that, like, when you're making a TV show, oftentimes the main character has a special skill that they use almost in every episode. And we were trying to think about our character Murphy, what was her special skill? And we were kind of saying, like, what? is the skill that Ryan and I are exhibiting in the room. And one of the writers was instantly like, you guys memorize everything. And it's true that one of the one of the worries that I had before stepping in, this is my first staff writer job. And I was very concerned about, will I be able to read the cards on the board? You know, because we construct the episode through note cards. And it's I know that since first grade, I haven't been able to read the board. And that's always been an issue for me. So we would have these moments where as a writer's room, we'd say, okay, what do we have so far? And I would start going through the episode Mm -hmm. and Ryan would be nodding along and I would realize that everybody else was looking at the board and thought that I was reading the cards. Mm -hmm. But in fact, Ryan and I have the cards kind of internalized. Oh, wow. So we become, wow. we're kind of stepping through the episode all the time because mm-hmm. when you don't have visual memory, kind of what you create is spatial memory. It's almost like memorizing the layout of furniture in a room. You don't think about it. You just kind of move Moves through it. Yeah. Um, so it's turned out that it's like, it's this wonderful thing of, we think we're in a visual medium and it's true, but uh, the way that we kind of construct the story in our mind is all that counts. Because as writers, that's all we're doing is constructing it in our mind. I mean, Ryan and I have talked about that as a... Uh, yeah, last last season, uh, there was a moment... I was on the show last season as well. And uh, there was a moment we were breaking something on the board. And I gestured at the board at a certain <laughs> beat, which I didn't... And apparently, I pointed right at it. Like, <laughs> and it sort of threw everybody off for a moment. But I, I noticed more this season, too. Like, Because Jess wasn't on the show last season. I was the only blind writer in the room. And Jess and I have a really similar um, sort of diagnostic sensibility, too. Like, I think it's because we're both holding the entire board in our head as a moving, shifting sediment, you know, that, that's always mm-hmm. being built and rebuilt. 
But because we're holding the whole thing in our head, we're very structurally sensitive. Like mm-hmm. things don't fit together very well sometimes. And, and you're sort of seeing things in a much more macro sense all the time. So I find like you and I both have very similar instincts in in sort of going to structural problems very quickly. Because we're holding the whole thing. Because we're holding the whole thing in our head. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a question we had is, so obviously TV is a visual medium. How do you sort of deal with that aspect? Is it an issue at all? And what drew you to TV as opposed to books? Uh, I, I started through the Sundance oh. Lab. And the, the thing I thought was really interesting about it was, like, I, I adapted my first memoir as just sort of a badass move, like, can a blind guy describe a movie to sighted people? Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that was interesting was, like, you know, you realize really quickly that a screenplay is... Um, it's a blind person's medium because you're describing a picture to people who can't see it. So you're coming at it from the other side of the table of empathy where I'm usually the one who's told what everything looks like. I know what it feels like to have things told where they don't match the rhythm of what something is unfolding like. You know, like if a bus is barreling at you on a TV or barreling at at a character on a TV screen, you don't want a Rococo long sentence doing that because it's not the feeling of the rhythm of it on the screen. So... You know, it's a really interesting medium because it is about the empathy for people who can't see what you're trying to put in words. Um, So that's that's what drew me to it. And then, you know, people are like, do you watch TV? And it's like, well, no, I don't watch it, but I listen to it. And it's just well-curated reality because every sound matters. You know, I can can pretty much figure out what's going on in any scene by the sound because all of it is relevant to what's going on that I need to be paying attention to. Unlike life, which is filled with sounds that don't matter to what I'm trying to do. Right. Uh, right. And the other thing is that um, we're good at dialogue because we actually listen to how people speak because the text is read back to us by a computer. Mm-hmm. So everything I type is read back to me immediately. So wow. I can hear whether something sounds like how a human talks. I, I never have like, that's a too literary of a sentence is something mm-hmm. has never been said about my dialogue because I'm either dictating it or the computer's dictating it back to me. So it's always gone through a human mouth uh, before the actor has to do it. It's funny, years ago, uh, when my first book came out, there was a British critic who had complained that my books sounded too much like somebody telling you their life sitting on a bar stool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, well, because it is. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a computer that's talking the whole time. And I realized it was sort of the birth of my sentence style was me wrestling with this Stephen Hawking voice and trying to make it sound more human. So, you know, you don't want to say vomit because Yark is much funnier, mm-hmm. you know, and having a computer say it is great. <laughs> and so, computer like, saying onomatopoeia is, is, is it's, great. It's the best. And so the, the, the fight I have with this computer was the origin of my style. And then I realized that that computer voice is the voice in my head. Like sighted people have a voice in their head, which is another character that reads to them, right, when you read to yourself. And we don't have that. Like mm. we don't anymore. So, you know, us wrestling with that computer voice, like you say, it's very much about the source of trying to replicate what our ears actually hear in the world and get it on on a page, right, and make a computer bend to our will that way. Something that I would imagine is frustrating for you both is like, okay, you're you're on a show that has a blind lead. So that makes sense. Oh, of course we have you know, blind guys writing on the show. We need that perspective. But I imagine you don't want to be just writing for blind characters, obviously. Showrunners take note. Uh, yes, and that <laughs> is what we want to talk about that because Sarah and I were talking, If we, we don't think we've ever been submitted a writer with any sort of disability. Um, hmm. And that just blew why us away. Well, that, that uh, we wanted question. to ask yeah. you, why do you think that is? Is it... 
um, the outreach that needs to be done? Is it, I mean, is it us? Is it agencies? Is it uh, exactly like, I, think, I mean, where's there is, the disconnect? There is that problem in the industry. Well, it's not necessarily a problem, but it can be a problem of, you know, you need a handle on yourself that people can th- can use to pick you up. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what is the thing that you are remembered as so that when a piece of material comes across an agent's desk, they think of you or a producer thinks of you. So for Jess and I, yeah, it's, a, it's there's kind of an obvious thing, which is like, oh, there's a blind character, so, we, you know, let's go to them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, over I, I've had my career for about, like, the last 10 years. I would say half of it has been material where people bring me like, you know, disease stories. Mm. It's like, here's a disease story. Could you make it a bit funnier? You know, <laughs> and, and that's sort of, well, that's the bread and butter. That's my beat. Mm-hmm. And I get, it, it sort of pays the nut. And then the other half of my time I spend on things that have nothing to do with it at, at all. But you have to kind of very self-consciously know, well, you do have a skill set that is valuable. Like you do have a point of view. Like blindness is a point of view and you should use it. Um, but that doesn't mean you want to get pigeonholed with that thing. So it is a fight mm-hmm. you have to have all the time. Because you don't want to just throw it out either, right? It is valuable. Right. It's who it's part of who you are. Yeah. And that is definitely we're always telling people, have a story, bring something to the table. And obviously you have that, but I just think, I don't know, we need to figure out how to be more inclusive. I mean, stating the obvious. Can we talk about some of the systems in your office? Um Kareen sent us a video of some tape in a hallway <laughs> and like just on a practical level. Look, I need to I need to actually just predicate this because this was Jess's invention and it we call it the Tokyo Highway in our <laughs> office because it is it is based on the system in Tokyo for blind people to get around. But I am the guy who's like, I would just walk down the hall and bang into shit until <laughs> I'd stop banging into it. And then uh, Jess comes in and modifies environments to make them better and more accessible. Uh, and I'm like, God, you're so competent. And I am so not competent. <laughs> right. So although I am the blinder one in the room, Jess is actually the better one at it than I than I am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, I think uh, my principal handicap is being a Midwesterner, not not this eyesight thing. So it's like apologizing and thinking you want to earn too. things yes. instead yeah. of wanting yes. them, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But, you know, I can see I was like, first of all, it was like, why is Ryan's office so far away from the writer's room? So right. we, we fixed yeah. that. And then I was like, why are there are two blind people here? We have blind actors and actresses on the show. We have consultants that come in. In, it, one of the things that people say is that you're only handicapped when your abilities don't match your environment. And it's like, if anything, we should change our environment here so that the writers are constantly aware of it, that we can show like these are the systems that work. It's not that hard at all. So we just created a way to move through the space that you can feel. So it's just because <laughs> we couldn't Describe figure out another Tokyo way. High. I was yes, going to say, please. I said to the production assistant, I said, get me a huge ball of thick rope and a lot of gaffer's tape. And we just laid down three stripes of this thick rope and then covered in tape. And so what it creates is a groove that you can put your cane on so that you can slide ah, knowing ah. when the wall's going to happen, when there's a turnoff, et cetera, et cetera. Because they, they have that in the Japanese uh, subway system to help, uh, help guide people. So it hashes sideways in front of doors exactly. so we know yeah. when to turn. So it creates this, this avenue where Ryan uh, knows that he can go uh, full speed down the hallway. And I know that when I go down the hallway, I'm not going to run into people if I'm in that lane, except for if I'm going to run into Ryan. But then that's hilarious. (laughs) We we forgive each other. We have a great meet cute (laughs) moment there. Um, But no, so so we've been doing things like that um, to make the office, you know, make everybody understand that the environments can change. We don't have to change. But, you know, going back to the, the sort of mechanics of the room, too, uh, last season, uh, one of our co-EPs 
he just got in this very interesting rhythm with me where once in a while he would just sense when I needed to get my mind's eye refreshed on what was on the board. Mm-hmm. And he would just say, let me tell you what's up. And he would just start telling the story of the episode or the act that we were working in. And it became like these mini moments where we could figure stuff out just by him having to tell it to me. So, you know, there's these moments that I was self-conscious about. Like, I felt like I was holding up the room, like, by saying, David, could you tell me what's on the board right now? Um, It actually turned into something that was really helpful Mm -hmm. in the room, right? So, like Jess is saying, like, sometimes I think as blind people, we're trying to always mitigate our imposition on the status quo of how things work. We're trying Mm -hmm. to sort of hide a little bit or dodge being difficult, quote unquote, or, or mm-hmm. you know, somehow needing, we, special, needing special treatment. Or yeah. something. But, you know, you if you do that, the problem is sometimes you take away opportunities to actually make the work better, you know, that we can contribute something to the way the workflow is because it's all based on assumptions. And, um, you know, sometimes the blindness in the room questions the assumption everything's built on. Mm-hmm. Well, and in your case, I mean, the lead character is blind, so having an understanding of how blind people move through the world is obviously very helpful for yeah. all the writers. Yes, And yes. do you feel, speaking of that, do you feel a need to protect her, that character, in any way? Do you get feedback from the community? I'm sure there's a lot of interest in the show and in the character. Mm-hmm. Do you feel a responsibility um, because she's blind, or could you just— separate yourself from that and just see her as a character. I don't feel protective of her in that tr- typical kind of precious sense. I'm mm-hmm. I'm protective of her um conflictedness and and sort of the dangerous elements in her that that I think we haven't seen in a disabled character before. But you know, Jess came in on the second season. I don't know if you felt that well, character. Well, let, let me just say that when it rolled around in the first season and I didn't get the job, Ryan Knighton became my nemesis because oh, I was like, he, yes. he stole my thing. And here yes. you sit together. I know. Yes. This is the real, this is the shining Hollywood example. Hollywood Because yeah. we go into generals, people would be like, do you know Ryan Knighton? He mm-hmm. is the other blind writer. Um, <laughs> when, when we talk. It's Highlander. There can only be it's, one. We can only, yeah, exactly. Um, when we talk about Murphy, I think what Ryan and I are just protective of is that like she is more than a blind character. That's mm-hmm. all. It's right. just like fully rounded human. And our writer's room is very good about that. Like we almost never discuss it. That's like on a tactical level of like how w- might she do this in the most interesting way. And I like Ryan, when my agent was like, there's a show about a blind person. I was like, oh, boy, what does she, you know, mm-hmm. solve legal cases by smelling things or like it's <laughs> yeah. always this like yeah. hackneyed, yeah. like that's her thing. And this character was just like a hot mess. And I was like, this is intra- This is an actual character. And one of her physical traits is that she can't see. Um, it wasn't the central spine of the story. So yes, I think we both really responded to the tone. And for anybody who's having issues with it, I just think representation is the best thing. Like this show being successful yes. allows yeah. us to have more uh, characters with visual impairments this season. We're expanding that even further. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, uh, they're, they're, it's not a zero-sum game. So it's like... It, we're just keep expanding it out, out, and um, out. We have um, we're introducing some new things in season two mm. um, that will kind of go into that a little bit more. So we're we're trying to now that we have success, thank goodness, from season one, we're trying to go deeper and get more representation on screen. And I think that's that's the real victory here. To, uh, what, to what you're saying too, I mean, there is that thing in culture where you're looking not only for representation, but like. You know, when does a disabled character become a character who is disabled, but the disability isn't the subject? 
right? right? Like where mm-hmm. right. they just fill yes. the screen as part of the landscape of another story. And the fact that they're disabled isn't occupying all the air as something they're trying to overcome, right? And so it was good to see a character, as you say, like people thought it was a show about a blind woman. And it's like, there's nothing in it about her trying to overcome it. Like, mm-hmm. and she's not comfortable with it either, but it's not what she's focused on. So there's something so, you know, compelling about the friction that that creates uh, and the dissonance for a lot of people that that creates, I think. Um, and it's great to write. It's so fun to write. Yeah, the, show, the show is a funny mystery thriller. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's not Touched by an Angel as yeah. much as I love that show. <laughs> big, big Della Reese stan here. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's not inspirational. And Ryan and I have talked about constantly being labeled as inspirational. inspirational. Oh, that's got to like, be you, annoying. You, know, you go to the hospital and they're like, I'm sorry, you're blind, but at least you're an inspiration. The, the number of Uber drivers who have told me that I am inspirational. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just trying to get to West Hollywood. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we can be interesting. I get that it's interesting, but yeah. it's not inspiring. Yeah. We're not all after school specials watch, walking around uh, L.A., so. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, Ryan, you said that 70% of, of blind people are unemployed. Something and like I'm that. And I'm guessing ve- the numbers for yeah. people with all kinds of disabilities are not great. Yeah. Um, so how can we and other working writers and executives, how do we help grow those numbers? How do we remove barriers? I, for me, it's it's a bit of a structural problem and just kind of understanding the industry. Like the, the industry is one part putting a play on in your grandma's backyard and one part million dollar cutthroat industry. And so I had conversations with managers and representation early on where I'd say, you know, should I mention the blindness or should I not mention it? Like it could help me be memorable and land the job or and they'd be like, yeah, I mean, it's also a liability for them because they don't know how to deal with it. So. I think there are, there are concerns that are founded on complete ignorance. Like right. we get around, we solve problems all day long. Mm-hmm. So like nobody's business. Like nobody's <laughs> business. I mean, you can talk to writers who are in wheelchairs and things and they talk about being on set and like you can't get into a trailer. Like there are things that people don't think of, but we have lived our lives thinking of those things. So I think a lot of barrier to entry is people thinking that we may be problems or we may require extra expense just like on a dollars and cents level. And it's just not true. And so it may not be something that we can do in the short term, um, but in the medium and long term, it's just slowly getting those writers with disabilities in shows and proves to more producers and more executive producers that it isn't a problem. It doesn't require anything extra. They get the work done and work harder than a lot of people because they've already developed systems in place. Mm -hmm. Um, So. I'm I'm very hopeful that it will change. And then it's just as uh, the secondary issue is kind of on the handicap issue that when you're presented with a disability, a lot of your life is people telling you to be safe. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot you're they're not really taught to want things or to mm. dream big in a way because everyone is very concerned about you not hurting yourself or not being in a situation where you're in danger. Yeah. So the idea that this industry is so much about dreaming big and like right. wanting Taking things and chances. going after it and um, I think that's like the larger, the larger structural issue. Um, because, I think it's true because yeah. it's like very much there's that feeling that you can't afford to aspire to something. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the other thing is that there's this often this conflation with a person's identity with their storytelling. So if you are in a wheelchair or you're deaf, that that you occupy that sort of disability lane of storytelling, and that's what you you own. And I think the 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 more l- sort of compelling way to think about it in some ways is that when you have been through the kinds of things that Jess and I have been through, you know, you have a very different point of view on the world than most people have. Like you've you've always been in a place where your point of view has been completely your own. 
And uh, you bring that to storytelling in a broader sense than just, I can write about blindness. It's like, I think in a very different way, I think, than sighted people do, because I've always had to problem solve things that people don't, you know, they take for granted, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, you, as I get older, I, I think more and more that storytelling really does fundamentally come down to point of view, right? The point of view is what drives the story. And you can make a mistake by picking one point of view over the other and have a completely different story. So by having a room that doesn't just have you know, one kind of point of view in it, like comedy as a point of view, right? Well, Mm -hmm. disability adds another kind of layer to a show that doesn't even have that in its subject quiver, you know, that we just are people who see things differently because we've always looked at the world from a different point of view, being, you know, in a chair or from behind a cane or in a room where you can't follow conversations uh, because you're deaf. I just think it's there's something broader in there than just thinking about it as a completion of an identity tells a certain kind of story and that's it. Yeah, we can't think that, oh, well, there's not a disabled person in the script, so we don't need a dis- uh, that's disabled right. exactly. person. Exactly. That's, that's right. basically that's what I was just to say. that barrier yeah. to entry needs to be gone. Thank you for editing me. That's no, what that I, was, that's no, what I, I mean. I took that. I took that from what you said. Somewhere it was in there. <laughs> but it's also like you know, we're writers like anybody else. I think if anything, there are a few disabled writers because it's hard to get jobs as a writer. <laughs> well, yeah. that is that true. is true. Basic <laughs> truism. It's it's hard to be employed in the industry. <laughs> You guys, thank you so much for being here. We want to remind everybody that you can watch the first season of In the Dark on Netflix. And season two will be out on The CW in January. Thanks a lot. fantastic. Next up, we have a listener question, sort of. But first, a break. Okay, Liz, here's some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs, you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. So it's time for our mailroom segment, and this question comes from Myra McMahon Leeper. She posted it in one of the WGA Facebook groups we're in, and it spoke to us so deeply. We messaged her and asked if we could discuss it here, even though it's not technically a listener question. And it turns out she is a listener. Yes. So I guess it is a listener question. It is a listener question. So thank you, Moira. (laughs) Um, Okay, so here is what she said. She said, Vanity Post, I show up in a dress, blazer, sneakers, and I'm brought water by ladies in major mom jeans and t-shirts. Should I be wearing mom jeans and t-shirts, overalls, jumpsuits? I feel unfashionable. Is it time to dress like the kids? Isn't this the question? Oh, God, we talk about this all the time. And of course, a lot of our listeners are 25. Yes. And they are wearing what all 25-year-olds are wearing. But some of us in our 30s and 40s and beyond, 
And it's like, how hip should you try to be? Yes. And the thing about mom jeans, I just have to say, mom jeans don't look good on actual moms. No. I mean, I, (laughs) you know, recently I bought a pair of mom jeans and then I returned them. Yes. Now, this is a generalization. Some moms look fabulous in mom jeans. Some moms are 22 years old. Everybody knows. I don't mean every mom everywhere. But— And in case anyone doesn't know, by mom jeans, we mean super high-waisted jeans, often with a very wide leg. It's just not always flattering. But here's what this question sort of made you and I realize, which I think was really interesting, is that, because, you know, I have a jeans problem. I am constantly buying jeans. You have like 700,000 pairs of jeans. And the thing is, though, what I realized is jean styles really do change. And... If it re- these little changes like a low waist versus a mid waist versus a high waist, frayed hems, non frayed hems, bootleg, yeah. uh, you know, straight, it, it all changes. Turned up, not turned up, boyfriend, whatever. Yeah. And the truth is, like, any jeans that look good on you are a good pair of jeans. Right. Right. I mean, I yes. think we all agree to that. But the styles do change. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you should just necessarily keep wearing the jeans that you got in 2001. Right. Well, and I think this really struck home for us, hit home for us, because we had both been struggling this specifically with this wide yes. leg jean thing. We were trying jeans on for each other for yeah. a few days. You were like, okay, I got a pair of jeans, and you brought them out. And I was like, I know, I got a pair of jeans like that like three months ago, and they've been sitting in my closet because I don't feel confident enough to wear them. It's, but having tried them on for each other, I did get them hemmed. I, mm-hmm. I will. Yours look adorable. I will wear them. Well, the other thing is once your eye is used to seeing a certain style all right. around, then it looks different to you. I mean, this is how Ugg boots were for me way back in the day. For and like now, of course, Ugg boots are the years, best thing in the world. I was just, how could anyone wear these? And then suddenly they <laughs> seem like the most normal thing in the world. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and then we should mention that Myra did wear overalls to her pitch meeting last week. And she said it felt amazing. Yes. So, I mean, isn't that what it comes down to? You just want to feel amazing. Yes. There is no one answer to this question. It's what do you feel good in? I know that I do feel better when I kind of feel like I'm current. Right. Um, And so, like, I'd, I'd like to try to do that. But not at the expense of looking ridiculous. Right. I don't think I'm going the overalls route. Although I say that, Sarah, cut to six months from now and I'll be at a pitch meeting in overalls. There was someone at our cocktail party in overalls, and I have to tell you, they looked fantastic. Don't think I didn't notice. I have looked at overalls online very recently, maybe within hours. (laughs) There was also someone in... um, Kind of one of those jumpsuit, the uniform jumpsuits, the kind of like yeah. mechanics outfit jumpsuits. And that looked adorable. They're cool. So, you know, I don't know. Do what you will. We support whatever choice you make. <laughs> and Wyra, we're very glad that you found overall bliss. And if you see us out wearing wide leg jeans <laughs> and you think we look ridiculous, please don't say anything. That's right. <laughs> okay. And now it is time for this week's Hollywood hack. Liz, it's a life changer for me. I have been looking for for pitch outfits. This is a long way to get around to our Hollywood hack, yeah. but I've been looking for pitch outfits. I do all my shopping online because I can't deal with shopping on the weekend with a child. And then if I get something and it doesn't fit, 
the bar for mailing something back Mm. is so high that things will just sit on the floor in my bedroom or I will, like, not return them in the right amount of time. And then I've lost all that money because then I can just donate it. And then it's like, oh, I could have returned that and gotten my money back. You said, well, you know, you can just return things in the store. Yes, I only order from stores that I can return to the actual store. So we, like, I don't like to order from Bergdorf's, for instance, because we don't have Bergdorf's in Los Angeles. I order from Nordstrom, Bloomingdale. I mean, of course, Gap, Old Navy, et cetera, et cetera. I got a dress from J. Crew. I don't like how it fits. I want to return it. I can there walk into the store. There are a million J. Crews, and a when million. you're and when you're just going in to return something, it's not the same as entering for a full shopping excursion. You just go in, you return, and you're done. Um, so I'm glad that I was able to make your life easier. I mean, it seems so obvious, but it never occurred to me that you could do that. I'm, yes. I mean, I'm so thrilled. Good. Well, thank you. Glad to be of service. from the depths of my shopping soul. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Email us or send us a voice memo to happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you to Jess Burkle and Ryan Knighton for coming in today, and thank you to our friend Kareen for helping coordinate the interview. Ryan is on Twitter. He's at Ryan Knighton. That's K-N-I-G-H-T-O-N. And Jess is at Jess Burkle on Twitter. You can watch the first season of In the Dark on Netflix, and the second season will premiere on The CW in January. Thank you to our executive producer, the amazing Chuck Reed. Also, thank you to Chuck for coming to the cocktail party last night and recording and making sure everyone could hear us. Uh, very much appreciated. It looked so fancy. <laughs> it looked so fancy. It did. Everybody loved meeting Chuck, of course. He's the amazing Chuck Reed. Thank you to everyone at Sancola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram at Sancola Sound. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13. And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Check out the other Onward Project podcasts, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, Side Hustle School, and the new podcast from Whole30's Melissa Urban, Do the Thing. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at Liz Craft and Sarah is at S. Fain. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join the conversation. Until next week, I'm Sarah Fain. And I'm Liz Craft. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. It was a great event. Did you soak up all those backyard compliments? Uh, I did. (laughs) Believe me. I got a lot of compliments. That's the whole reason I wanted to have the party was to get compliments on my backyard. And I succeeded. (laughs) From the Onward Project.